Good morning. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, thanks so much for being here this morning. Uh, we are in uh, uh, our final weeks. This week and next week are our final weeks in a series out of Eden. We're Basically, what we've been doing is looking at the early parts of our Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the first thing we have in our Bible, and examining there who God is, who man is, uh, kind of what sex is, what marriage is, uh, what woman is, and just kind of kicking some of that around. Can look at the foundations of life and seeing that these characters named Adam and Eve that many of us have heard of, even if you didn't grow up in a church, and how, how they have lived and how they have, God has wired them still impacts, and their world is still with us today. If you want to turn with me to that section of your Bible, Genesis Genesis chapter 3. Okay, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to find Genesis 3 at the very beginning. Um, easy one to find. Flip a couple pages in. If you don't have a Bible, please see us afterwards, and we would love to place one in uh, your hands. Genesis chapter 3. Now, this morning, we're going to deal with a subject that's common to most of us in this room, but most of us don't really ever stop and acknowledge it. But it's a subject that actually has driven success for many of us, but it's a dark, scary, ugly thing when you really stop and examine it. We're going to deal with this word. It's, it's a word. It's an ugly word. It's called shame. It's a word that this has been my journey for years. And as I've delved into this with counselors and different counselors I've gone to have often said to me, Adam, this is a core struggle for you. So I've spent a lot of time in the Bible, spent a lot of time with friends and mentors and reading and studying around this. What I began to discover is it's not just my struggle. I began to discover that many of us, many of us walk uh, down this road. And and again, I mentioned what the scary force is some of us have used this word to garner and gain success in life. And many of us are using it against others to try and help them be successful in life. And it's really uh, a very ugly. What shame is, um, what shame is, it's the message that says you are not enough. You don't have what it takes. You're weak. You don't measure up. Now, generally, it comes from others. It came from others, and I could tell you multiple stories in my own life, but where it came from me, I remember one very vivid picture was a football coach when I was in 10th grade. He came to me. I was injured. I was on the sidelines at practice, and he walks up to me, and he basically says, he says, Nagel, are you going to play next year? And I said, well, yeah. He goes, you know, you're a waste of a uniform. Now, what he was getting at, he had a point to a certain degree because I was one of these kids that up until this point had just kind of gotten through in the sport because I was one of the biggest kids. I was also one of those kids that every time practice would get a little tough, I'd get out my inhaler. Oh, I got asthma attack. Oh, boy, I got it because I have asthma. Now, a lot of times I didn't really. I was lying, but I was looking for a way to go sit in the sideline while they all were in their sprints, and I got to be there and, and felt good about myself. So he saw some of that in me. But when he said it to me, I had this peace inside of me, and shame kicked in. It's the message we hear from others. You're not good enough. You don't measure up. You're too weak. You're, and it kicked in. And, but what ends up happening with shame is it comes from others, but we soon internalize it. And where it's so poisonous is because what I did with my shame is I said, I am going to prove him wrong. And by my senior year, I was first team this and that and being recruited by colleges. And I look back and the motivation came from shame. So some of us think this is good, but it's really poisonous. So what happens is then the message shifts from others saying it to us, and soon we start saying it. It becomes our own self-talk. And, and, it, and it comes and shame, the classic shame word is I am. And then it's an I am, and then you fill it in. I am a failure. 
I am nothing. Some of you might say, I am stupid. That was one when I was a kid, I was a solid C student, and I, I believe that. I am stupid. I am a loser. I am hurt. I am annoying. I am fat. I am ugly. I am a burden. I'm worthless. I'm weak. I'm forgetful. I am afraid. I am poor. I'm too tall. I'm too skinny. I'm not enough. I'm boring. I'm bad. I'm a disappointment. I'm stubborn. I'm defeated. I'm unworthy. I'm anxious. I'm unloved. I'm directionless. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm lazy. Now, here's the deal. We're going to talk about this subject, and I want to just hit the pause button. As we talk about this, I want to do something that that I would like to do every week, but this morning, I think it's extra important. I want to give you permission to check out. Give you permission to check out. What I find happens in the Christian circle is people will come to church for multiple reasons. You'll come to church and you're really, you've had a long week and your mind is on anything, but I am here to connect with God and grow with him. If your mind is not ready to do some hard work this morning, I give you permission to check out. If you're here because mom or dad have made you to be here because husband or wife have drugged you along, or you're kind of here, I again, give you permission to check out why this is, I would love to do this every week, but what I find in the Christian circle in churches is we kind of come half-hearted and we sit down and we hear something and it tugs at our heart and it feels good. And then we walk away, but we don't do anything about it. And what a writer in the Bible says, it deceives us into thinking we got it together. And shame is one of these things that it is so, such a part of many of our stories that we've never stopped and done the hard work to really examine it. And it has driven success for many of us and it is protecting some of us from hurts and pains that we really don't want to feel. So if you're not willing, you can't open this can halfway. You either open it all the way or don't open it at all. would be my counsel. So have a smartphone, pull it out and play Angry Birds. Bejeweled, I don't know, whatever your game is. Just don't disturb the people around you. Draw pictures if you don't have a smartphone. But I'd encourage you, if you're not willing to do some hard work this morning, check out. Because if not, I think it's going to end up hurting you more. But here's what shame is. And then we're going to talk about Adam and Eve. Most of us in this room, you look at this and you say, amen, I get this. Some of you have grown up in the church. Some of you have heard this preached for years. Some of you, maybe this might be new. Some of you maybe aren't even in the church, but social scientists even will say this is true. We are hardwired to connect. Every one of us in this room is hardwired and put together to connect both with God and other people. And without connection, there is suffering. It's the root of almost all suffering. Almost all suffering have at its root the disconnection, the, the gap between of, of not being unloved and being hurt and being withdrawn. So we're all hardwired to connect. Now, what we do with this then is when we begin to sense, often when love and belonging hang in the balance, what we do then is we reach for protection, not realizing it only strengthens the suffering in isolation. So when we begin to sense, okay, I'm wired to connect with you. You're wired to connect with me. I'm wired to connect with my wife or you're wired to connect with your husband or you're wired to connect with your kids or your friends or your coworkers. And what ends up happening, we do things that are bad. We do things that are wrong. And then we begin to sense I've, I've failed. I am, and those statements shift in and what begins to realize is, Uh, They may not accept me. I may not belong. I may be on the outside looking in. I'm unworthy. I'm not enough. What most of us do then is that's where shame takes full root. And then what we do is we reach for protection. To pretend. We're going to talk about how we do that. So just hang on to the thought. We reach for protection thinking that I'm going to keep myself from the hurt. 
But what ends up happening always is in trying to keep myself from the hurt and trying to protect myself as opposed to using a word that I would call vulnerability and stepping out and acknowledging my failure and walking towards, I reach in to protect and in protecting, it only strengthens the suffering and the isolation and it gets harder and uglier. Adam and Eve went down this road in Genesis chapter three. And it has been an absolute perfect mess ever since. Now, here's the thing I want to say that Genesis 3 points out. And next week, as we end the series, it's going to end with this as its exclamation point. When we read Genesis 3, we find sin and ugliness. We've been looking at it now for two weeks. This is the third week in Genesis 3. And we find all kinds of messed up stuff. And one of the things that I think we often miss is that God says loud and clear through the entire chapter, I am for you. I will seek you. Please don't hide. I have an answer to your mess. I have an answer to your I'm not enough. I have an answer to your pain. Please don't hide. And he demonstrates all throughout the chapter, though we see some ugly consequences and though we see God levels the playing field and say, it's going to be a mess from here on out. We say, well, geez, God, you're awful hard on Adam and Eve. We see all that. But in the midst of all that, God is saying, I am for you. I'm going to seek you. Please don't hide from me. Please don't protect yourself because in protecting yourself, you're going to run from me. And I don't want that. Look with me at Genesis chapter three. Let's pick up at verse seven. We've been talking about two weeks ago, Pastor Chris, if you remember, if you were here with us, if not, you can find it online. Pastor Chris talked about this guy named Satan, who is the serpent. And he talked about why we know it's Satan and then kind of laid out what Satan's schemes are and who Satan is. And, and then last week we talked about the, the next couple of verses, then get into temptation and how Satan works and what he does and, and how he works with and, and tries to get us to fall. And so we talked about that. Now today we're going to talk about, okay, we're, we fall to temptation. It's a reality of life. The person sitting beside you has fallen once or twice this week. You've fallen maybe a little less, but you've fallen too. I know you probably think they're a little, but we've all fallen. So what happens then? Verse 7, here it comes. Pick it up. They've eaten the fruits. It says this. Then the eyes of, the, of both of them, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. I mean, Ralph Lauren would be jealous here. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, very important. Look over at verse 25 of chapter 2. The end of perfection is chapter 2. Chapter 3 is where the mess comes. But the end of perfection, if you look at verse 25, it says, The man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and they felt no what? Now look at verse 7. There's a big difference between just a few verses there. Verse 7 now says their eyes were open. They realized they were naked, so they make these leaves. So shame is now in the picture. Shame is full on. It is with us. Now look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God, and we're going to talk about the power of this, this statement in a minute, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid again, protection. He's looking for protection. Verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. So it's interesting. We're going to talk about this in a minute. God doesn't address this. God knows shame is in the picture. God knows shame is running well, but God does not say, oh, come on now, Adam. Come on now. You ate the fruit. Let's not blame it. He doesn't even address it. Look what he does. He goes right to the woman. So the woman, then the Lord said, verse 13, said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, well, the, the serpent, I mean, so let's just keep passing it on down. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, God doesn't address that. I found that very interesting. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I want to pause right there. If my parent, if my kids ever ask me for a snake as a pet, I'm going to go right to this verse and say, sorry, kids. God says, no, snakes are bad. I hate snakes. I despise snakes. And those of you who like them, I think you have a problem. And this verse points it out. (laughs) Now, (laughs) all joking aside, that is referring to Satan. And Chris did a great job two weeks ago talking about that reality. So verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offsprings and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Powerful statement. We're going to spend a lot of time on that particular statement next week. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. All the women in the room, Eve, thank you. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Interesting statement. We're going to talk about that one at length. Verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat of the food until you return to the ground. So in other words, from the time you live until the time you die, it is going to be hard. The rest of the verse, since from it you were taken and dust you are, and to dust you will return. Then verse 20, and then we'll look at the rest of the chapter next week. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. Powerful statement, and we'll talk about that one also next week. Now, the thing I want to point out, last week, to kind of tie last week into this week, one of the things that Satan said to Eve... You're not going to die. Come on. God just doesn't want you to be, have competition. You're not going to die. So Eve eats it. Now, she didn't experience immediately physical death. And one of the things I want to talk about is what death is. Death literally is just simply, it's a simple thing. It's called separation. There's physical death and there's spiritual death. Death, all it means is separation. So when you will physically die one day or when you have had loved ones die, what is happening in the death process is the soul is being ripped from the body. There is separation. It was not designed to be separated, but now it's going to happen. You're going to return to the earth. Your body is going to return to dust and the soul is going to be ripped away and spend eternity somewhere. That's a physical death. Spiritual death, though, is the same thing. Spiritual death is simply separation from God. So what's happened now is Adam and Eve have experienced for the very first time a wrenching, a tearing of this relationship that they were designed to have with God, an intimate, close, naked and unashamed relationship with God that is now just ripped in half, and they feel it. They feel it deep in their being, and that's why they go and they do this thing called hiding. And what I want you to understand throughout this is God is a good God. God isn't some big meaningless guy who can't wait to slap down Adam and Eve because they've made a mistake. God is just. 
Think back to what God promised Adam and Eve. What did he say to him? I'm going to give you everything. I've made you this whole entire world, but you just can't eat of that one tree. And then he said this, if you eat of the one tree, you will what? Die. So why should we be upset at God when Adam and Eve knew the consequence? They knew it would happen. God spoke the word and then they violate it. It's not God's problem. It's Adam and Eve's issue. God is a very good God. God sticks to his word. How many of you respect parents or coaches or teachers or your boss or pastors who say one thing, say, this is what's going to happen, but then go back and do something different. None of us respect it. It is a very good and very just thing to do to say, hey, these are the boundaries. These are what we're calling you to do. And then when it's violated, hey, this is what happens because of it. God is a good God. God, you can take him at his word. You can trust him. He is for you. Now, not only is is he good because he sticks to his word, but if you look at this passage, this is absolutely mind-blowing to me. He asks questions. He doesn't parent like many of us. So how do I go and ask questions? A lot of times I hear a kid come to me and they complain, you know, this happened, they do this whole thing, and I get all worked up, and I stomp upstairs, and I'm ready to just level the boom on the other kid until the other kid says, but, 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 Dad. And then the other kid tells me their story, and I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe I should have asked first. But God asks. He comes to him, and he walks into him, and you see this. I love this verse, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, how did they know it was God? I believe, I read between the lines here. You, I don't walk away and say the text says this, but I believe what's happened is God regularly, probably, most likely, walked with these characters, Adam and Eve, in the garden. In the cool of the day is either the morning as the sun is coming up or the evening as the sun is going down. And God is used to stepping into the garden and walking in an intimate way with these two. They know what it sounds like. They know who he is. They know how he moves. They know what he, and suddenly God shows up. And what does God do? Verse 9. Where are you? Now, why does God ask this question? It's not for God. It's for Adam and Eve. What he's doing is I am seeking you. And you go through all these questions that he walks through because he's seeking. He's moving towards. He's drawing out. Because he's saying to them, guys, listen, I know you're full of shame right now. And I want to teach you how to process shame well. I want to teach you how to do this thing well so that you have life and find life in me. So I think what he's doing is he's modeling for them how to process shame. And one of the things shame does is shame hides. And to kill shame, you have to speak it. You have to pull it out into the light. I think what God is doing is modeling. Get it on out here, guys. Come out to me. It's okay. Yes, we've got a mess. Yes, you feel bad. And yes, it's not okay in that you violated a pretty big command here and you made a mess for everyone hereafter, but come on out. So God has demonstrated, I am for you. Now, the other thing that he does, it's very, very important. If you look at verse 14, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. Now, if you flip over to verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. What's missing? Something very important is missing. Look down at verse 17. To the man, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Notice the difference of how he handles Satan and how he handles Adam and Eve. There is a very key word that is not used with Adam and Eve that is used with Satan. You see what it is? 
cursed. I cannot stress this enough. We are sinners, but we are not cursed. You are not, God's looking at you and says, well, Satan, Satan's day in court has come and gone. The end of the story is written and we know what happens to Satan. There is no hope for him. There is no repenting. There is no coming to God to find life. There is no saying, gee, I blew it, God. Will you please forgive me? It is over. He is cursed. But with Adam and Eve, they are not cursed directly. Now there, there's a mess and we're going to talk about the mess. But Adam and Eve are not cursed. God is saying, I am for you. I am not cursing you. I'm going to give you some consequences for the, for the fact that you made a mess. Hugely important to say God is for us. And what he's doing, he says, I want you to understand how to process this thing called shame. Now, he gives us the answer later in the Bible. Second Corinthians says it this way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Now, we pause right there. Don't read the rest of it yet. Most of you in this room say, that is what I want. When I blow it, that is what I want. I want to be able to, I blow it. I feel bad. Something inside of me says there's a problem. There's something ugly going on. What we all crave at that moment is to be free of that feeling to be, and to have, to have no regret and to be able to live as a saying, I am enough. But most of us don't ever do that. Most of us continue to walk through life, and we experience the second one. But worldly sorrow brings death, broken relationships, separation between me and God. And what God is doing in Genesis chapter 3, I fully believe, is what he's trying to teach Adam and Eve is how to do the first part of that verse and avoid the second part. And I think if we will listen and if we will work at it, I think we'll find a lot of hope in life, in the mess that we're in. Here's how I would split this up. I would say this. Now, the scriptures don't always split these words like this, but I'm going to take 2 Corinthians 7, and for our own language, here's how I would do it. I think guilt says, I did something bad, and it's healthy. You feel something. You know that you have done something bad. You have sinned. You have violated the law. You have violated one of God's commandments. You know that you have done something bad. Shame says something very different. Shame says, I am bad. I am bad. It's now taking the sin that you've committed and defined all of your existence as though I am bad. And I think there's a big uh, difference with that. Shame is a painful feeling. We're experiencing experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of belonging, of love and acceptance. Shame is saying, I am bad and God doesn't want me. My wife doesn't want me. My kids don't want me. My, and we don't know what to do with it. And we run and we hide and we do some very ugly things with it. When God's saying, hey, Adam and Eve, experience guilt. And let's talk about how to process that in a healthy way. Now, I want to say something else, too. We are all sinners. All of us are sinners. Romans chapter 5, it's a part of our New Testament. New Testament just means it's a part of the Bible that's written after Jesus. And it says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, that's what came, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. You were born a sinner. You aren't born all clean and cuddly and cute, and one day you make a bad choice, and then you become a sinner from there on out. You are a sinner. You're born a sinner, and it's passed on from the man. Not the woman, but the man. That's why the virgin birth with Jesus is so important. It's a truth that the church must protect because the, the man passes the sin nature on, not the woman. Now, so we're all sinners. 
And we all have this, we all are going to make mistakes. Matter of fact, I would even say it this way. I would use a theological term. Let me give you some theology 101 here. Kind of bring us off. I would say we are totally depraved, meaning you, you can't fix it yourself. You're going to continue to sin. You're going to continue to make poor choices. You're going to continue to do things that are not good in violation of God's law. But total, total depravity, okay? I want to borrow, that's typically a term you see with, maybe some of you know the term reformed theologians. But here's a reformed theologian who actually defines total depravity in a beautiful way. He says this, this is J.I. Packer, says, depravity does not mean that we are at every point as bad as we could be. Rather, we are at no points as good as we should be without outside help. Because you have to remember, one of the things we talked about is you are created in the image of God. Even if you don't know Jesus, even if you've never had Jesus work in your life, even if you, that's never happened for you and you're not a Christian, you still have the image of God residing as a part of you. Aside from that, God has this thing called common grace where he continues to work in mankind. He simply says, hey, if you obey God's laws, even if you're not a Christian, life's going to probably generally go better for you. And so what it means is when I am a sinner, it means that I'm going to continue to make poor choices and at no point am I going to be as good as I should be without outside help. We cannot fix this one on our own. Now let me illustrate how this shame and guilt thing works. I want to tell a story. I want to tell a story with a really simple thing that some of you would even say that's not a sin. That's why I want to tell the story because I think it illustrates all the more how powerful this thing is in our life. Say you, set, you decide you haven't seen a friend in a while and your friend calls you up and your friend says to you, let's do lunch. Cool, let's do lunch. So you set it out a few weeks in your calendar. You say to your friend, I'm really busy. I've got a lot going on right now. If we're going to do lunch and we're probably looking at two or three weeks out. So your friend says, that's cool. I really want to get together. It's been a while since we've connected. So you set the date, you write in your calendar, 12 o'clock. The day comes, 12.15 hits on that day and your phone rings. You're in your office or you're out on a job site. The phone rings. You look down. Right away, your mind hits. Ah, I forgot about lunch. Right away. Now, shame and guilt, they track very different. I want to talk about in this scenario, now you're feeling something. I want to talk about if you go with shame, how it's going to go to a very dark place versus guilt, which is just going to simply own it and move on. Because at this point, remember, what's hanging in the balance, this is what we talk about, what's hanging in the balance is my friend's exception, accepting of me. It's hanging in the balance now. So what we want to do is we want to protect ourselves. Here's what shame says. Shame says, I am an idiot. You begin to attack yourself. Are you an idiot? I hope not. You may just be really busy, forgot a detail. It doesn't make you an idiot. But that's what shame does. Shame says, I'm an idiot. Shame might say, I'm a terrible friend. I'm a loser. Well, no, not really. You just forgot. Guilt says this. Guilt says, I can't believe I did that. What a crappy thing to do as a friend. It's poor. It's, it's bad. I've stood my friend up. It's not good. I feel bad about it, but I'm going to acknowledge it. It's not good. Now, see, when, when shame comes, here's what we do. And, and Adam and Eve did much of this. When shame comes, the first thing we want to do is blame and then rationalize. So how would you blame your friend in this one? Well, here's how it goes. You answer the phone. Man, I'm really sorry, but you know what? I told you I was really busy. This really wasn't a good day for me. Now, what's your friend supposed to do with that? Oh, well, I'm sorry about that. Now, your friend ends up apologizing to you. 
And you've just shifted all the responsibility to them for you missing the appointment. But that's what we do. We shift blame. We'll find a way to get it off of me and onto them. Here's another approach. Maybe a half-hearted apology. I'm really sorry. And then you hang the phone up and you say this, whatever. If they knew how busy I was, they'd be apologizing to me. Here's the other one. This is one Adam and Eve did. This is, this is Adam and Eve's classic shame. This is, this is classic for shame is you hide. So in other words, here's how hiding works. You see the caller ID right away. Your mind goes, oh, I missed the appointment. So you don't answer the phone. You wait three hours. Then you dial them back. Hey, uh, man, I guess got your voicemail. Didn't you get my email this morning? Your friend says, what email? No, I didn't get an email. Oh, I sent an email this morning. I just said I was really busy. I wasn't going to be able to get there. You know, maybe you ought to go back and check your spam folder. You know, maybe it's stuck there. Or I'll check mine. Maybe, I'll send, maybe, maybe there's something wrong with mine. You check and you really didn't send it, but you check and you go, oh, you know what? I, gotta, it did, it did, I was sitting here in my outbox. It never sent. You're hiding. You've run and you've hid. It's not even a major sin, but this is how we do. Instead of just saying, you know what? Yeah, I was wrong. I missed the appointment. It's a cruddy thing to do as a friend. We go with all these other answers and all these other things. Now, guilt has a positive influence. I feel bad. I own what I feel. And guilt, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says guilt, deal with it well, and it leads to life. What research shows, there are people that spend their career just researching shame, believe it or not. I don't, that's not a, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me, but there are people that do it. And here's what the research shows. Research shows that shame is highly correlated with addiction, violence, aggression, depression, eating disorders, and bullying. How many of those things that we've got a problem with in our culture. I mean, all I'm hearing about right now, my kids in school is bullying. They're doing everything they can to stop bullying. Well, when you really study this reality of it, it's just because mom and dad at home are shaming their kids or the teachers are shaming their kids and it leads to bullying. Now, what the research also points out is shame. And this supports, I love how research lines up with scripture. I love it. Shame corrodes the part of us that believes that we can change and do better. Second Corinthians chapter seven says unhealthy says that that when that shame sets in, it leads to death. And that's what the researchers say. Here's another way to say it. Here's what the research says. This is research. And I think this lines up with Adam and Eve and many other places in scripture. Shame does these three things with shame. We seek to protect. We do it by three ways. One, either we move away. So we withdraw, we hide, we keep secrets or we go silent. The second thing we will tend to do with shame is if we don't want to move away, we'll move towards. So in moving towards, what we do is we become a people pleaser. So in that phone call, now I move towards my friend that I set the lunch up with and just try and keep him happy. Because remember, what we're trying to do with shame is keep intact that I am worthy, I am enough, I am acceptable. So I'm trying to now please my friend so that I can hear from my friend, hey, you're a good friend, I love you. The third thing we'll do is we'll move against. Now, Adam and Eve, this is the one they kind of did. They set themselves up against God. They, 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 looked, they didn't look to gain power aggression, but there's, they blamed or they'll shame themselves. Well, it's the woman you gave me, God. It's her problem. Really, Adam? Stop blaming. So God, I love how God doesn't address that. God doesn't call it out. God just says, well, Adam, let's talk. And he pulls Adam out and he seeks him to bring, come out into the light. And all of these things are completely and totally anti-relational, all of them. 
Now, I'm not talking in any way, shape, or form that we ignore sin or the reality of suffering. I fully admit all of us are sinners, and we're going to have this thing called guilt. I believe there are far too many humanistic thinkers and psychologists and some others out there in our world today that do not spend enough time acknowledging the reality of sin and the curse and suffering that it brings. There are too many people kind of almost live, and pastors will say, I think, fall and say, almost live like we can live pain-free this side of heaven. Well, guess what? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So let's talk about the curse. Because the curse is very real. Guilt does set in. I do do wrong. I, I do wrong things. Look at the curse. Look at verse 16. Next week, we're going to talk clearly about verse 15, because in verse 15, we have unbelievable hope cast to the future. And we'll talk about that next week. But verse 16 says this to the woman. He said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing with pain. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So that's to the woman. Now, to Adam, he basically says, cursed is the ground because of you. The middle of verse 17 here. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. I will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. What's interesting to me is you look at these curses. Remember, Adam and Eve themselves are not directly cursed, but if you look at what is cursed, their roles are cursed. God steps in and he says, if you look at this, what was the woman created to do? We talked about this a few weeks ago. The woman is an easer. It's this old Hebrew word that basically is a description that God uses for himself. And he says, the woman is going to be a helper. In other words, she's not going to step in and help the man do what he can already do by himself, but do it better. She's going to step in and help the man do what he cannot do. She is his helper. She is absolutely necessary part of his life. So you look at this here, what goes after? You're going to desire your husband and he's now going to rule over you. She's also wired to give, to have children. We're creating the image of God. We're creative children. So what, what's cursed the role of the woman, man, man is wired. He's created. I mean, this is why in the Olympics you have female track and field and you have male track and field. Why do we separate the two? Because science has shown that the male body is a stronger body. The man was designed and put together to be the head of the covenant. And the man is designed and put together to work hard and provide. So what goes, what's attacked? Man, how many of you hate your job? How many of you wish so bad that you could make the ends meet at the end of the month and you just have a hard time making it happen? That's what we went after here. And what I find interesting is I read on shame and guilt and I've done it over the years. Research shows that men and women process shame differently. This is powerful. And when you study how women process it versus how men process it, and you read Genesis 16 and 17, it's like this big light bulb goes on. Women process it through their role in the curse. Men process it through their role in the curse. For example, here's how it works. Here's what research shows. Women, shame is rooted in mothering. It's their role. You talk to women when shame, when you really get digging deep with shame, man, there's always, I'm not good enough as a mom. I'm not measuring up as a mom. It's something that has to do with the home. The second thing that women shames rooted in is they ask the question, am I pretty enough? And I said this a few weeks ago, women are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are gorgeous. They're beautiful. They're the most beautiful thing God put together. And it's funny to me, they run around and they think, well, am I pretty enough? 
And that's where we get eating disorders and all the other crazy stuff that spins out of that because they're trying to be pretty enough. And the final one is women, women experience shame. It's the area of perfection, being good enough. Men, on the flip side, here's how they process shame. Studies show that men shames generally, they're asking this question, and they're basically stating, do not perceive me as weak. I'm not weak. Man, think about the things where you get worked up the most. It's usually when someone's coming after, you're not man enough. It's where you get angry. It's where you start to get defensive and want to fight. And the second area is I'm strong enough. And basically, they're kind of two related. Now, when you look at this, then you look at how this plays out between a husband and a wife. And I love this little statement in here. I don't love it in the results, but I love what it says. Verse 16, he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, the thing that's interesting about this, the word desire in the Hebrew language, it is exclusively used in our early parts of our Bible to refer to sexual desire. Now, when you read that, let's just say that's so is that what it means. Your sexual desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, I say no. My experience tells me no. You know, when we did the sex talk a few weeks ago. Do you know what I heard repeatedly from men? I heard one man, I had two men actually say this to me. I took, I took more notes that service than I've ever taken. Do you know what I wrote down? When you put the slide up, it's frequent and often. So I've, my experience tells me that, that women are not running around all hot and bothered and ready for their men. I mean, it's just, my experience says it's quite the opposite. The other thing I'd like to believe, I'd honestly like to believe this. I'd like to believe that women, and I believe this is true from Genesis 2, actually desired sex with their husband before the fall came. I think the word is used as a sexual word because what it's trying, the writer's trying to grab the passion of this the intimate relationship that is here and, and on at stake. It's not just some lackadaisical ho-hum. This, this is like, this is passion. And what most people do with this, and, and, it's, and it can be done with this, and I understand this is the real easy definition of this, is that what is happening here is the woman is going to look at the man and think, you're a chump. You're a horrible leader. I wish you'd step to the plate and start leading me and our kids like you've been called to. And then what she's going to do, she desires him to lead. So then she's going to step up and say, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And then the man in turn has this, see this, he will rule over. The Hebrew word is like this. He's going to hit back and he's going to hit hard. Now, that's the easy place to go with it. But I think it's much more subtle. Let me tell you, here's another story that I think may help unpack this one for us. Keeping in mind how women process shame. Put in the context of marriage. It's going to happen in single life too, but it's going to put this in the context of marriage. Your wife goes out for the evening and she says to you as a husband, we take care of the kids tonight, get the dishes done, and we're in, we're in good shape when I get home. I can do that. So your wife goes out. She goes out with her friend Mary. Now, while they're out, Mary, they go over to Mary's house and Mary shows, shows, her, shows your wife this magnificent new home that they're living in. This gorgeous place. And the whole time your wife is walking around the home, she's beginning to think, wow, wow, this is amazing. Remember, where do women begin to process shame is on the home front. Am I pretty enough? Am I perfect? And all this whole home front. So your wife is now driving home and here's what she's processing. Could be processing. I'm going home to a dump. 
boy, would I love to be going home to that place. Then you get home and then you get home and you walk in, the wife walks into the kitchen and sees over in the sink a half done job with the dishes. He maybe loaded the dishwasher, but left the pots and the pans sit. And then you walk into the living room and there sits husband with his feet propped up, controller in his hand. What happens at this point? We're going to have a conversation, right? Communication is going to take place. Now, she will probably, if she's a good wife, she loves her husband. She's for her husband. And so deep down, she's going to try and temper what she says. And she's going to say, she'll start talking about, um, talking about her experience. And she may even say something like, you know, I was over at uh, Mary and John's house. Now, you ought to see their new place. It's amazing. You know what, honey? Do you know why Mary says they have that new place? Because John finally stepped up. And went and talked to his boss about that promotion that he'd been talked about for the last year. And the boss said no, so he went out and started his own thing. And man, that whole thing is he risked. He really stepped out. He's a man. Now what, she's in, what he's internalizing is, oh, no, 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 you didn't just go there. And then you get into this, and it gets down, and then you get into the weeds. You start lobbing grenades, and it's like, well, look at that honey-do list. I mean, how comes you can't fix that back screen door? And how comes you, and you get into this whole thing, and the wife is going after the man's role. And then he begins to hit, and he's going to, that's it, I've had enough of it. And he will either do one of two things. He's either going to, one of three things. He's going to move away, just withdraw. That's it, I'm going to bed for the night. I'm out of here. I don't need to put up with this. Or he's going to move towards, he might move towards, Oh, honey, you know what? I'm really sorry. Let me go out and do the dishes right now or let me go. It's weak. It's not what she wants. She wants you to look at her in the eyes and say, I blew it. You're right. I didn't do the dishes tonight. But instead, shame sits in and you got to keep her happy. I want to, oh, man, it's hanging in the balance now. It's her acceptance of me. Or they move against. And this is usually what I see a lot happen a lot. We're going to fight. We're going to go at it. We're going to blame. We're going to shame. And it's all completely and totally anti-relational. And God says, it's what you're, the world you're going to live in. Now, here's what I've found interesting and very painful. We're going to do a series on marriage in, in three weeks. We actually start the series. We do a six-week series on marriage. And what I find interesting is when I read a lot of Christian authors on marriage, what you hear a lot about is men love your wives, women respect. You hear a lot about men leading and women respecting and submitting. I think it's dangerous because I think we're spinning Genesis 3 out of control. And we're missing Genesis 2. And I think Ephesians chapter 5, we're we're spinning. What we're teaching people to do is Genesis 2.16. Men, go out and lead. Women, be submissive. Now, should men lead? Absolutely. Do not walk out here and say, Adam said men aren't the leaders. Absolutely, they should lead. But Ephesians 5, and we're going to talk about this, verse 22, before the woman is ever told to submit. you You know what they're told to do? Submit to one another. And before they're told to submit to one another, they're actually told to be filled with the spirit and submissive to Christ. I think the answer to marriage is not found in Genesis 3. Let's just keep harping on the man to lead and keep telling the woman to be submissive. The answer is found by going back to Genesis chapter 2 and saying, how were we wired to work together in the first place? And let's deal with the sin that's entered. Let's be honest about it. Let's address it. But let's work towards that mutual submission where the man is the head and the woman is this beautiful helper and easer that comes alongside of. Not this heavy-handed, I'm the leader. You're the one that's got to submit and move on. I've heard far too many people in my office over the years of the man look finally ending the conversation, well, you're called to submit to me. 
No. You're not called to lord it over her either. So again, I, very, so the curse is here. We're in this perfect mess. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? Well, God, I think, models it for us by calling Adam out. He calls him out and he says, let's deal with this. And next week, we're going to talk at length next week, and this sets us up to next week, where he promises hope. He actually promises us Jesus right here in Genesis chapter 3. He doesn't use Jesus by name, but he promises us Jesus right in Genesis chapter 3. So I want to set us up for next week and do that well. But I think what he's doing is he's modeling John chapter 3. And here's what John 3 says. So what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your shame? And how do you make sure it's guilt and it's healthy and not shame and ugly? Here it is. For God did not send his son into the world, but to condemn the world. This is John chapter three, verse 17. This is the verse that comes immediately after the famous, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. You guys know this verse so well. If you've been in church at all, even if you haven't been in church, you've probably seen it at a sporting event or seen it somewhere, or seen it out in someone's yard. So the Senate says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Let's just pause right there. Isn't that what God did with Adam and Eve? Did, it, did God show up and condemn Adam and Eve? Think about this. God did not show up and say, you are cursed. I want nothing to do with you. You are condemned and headed to hell. What did he do? He showed up and he seeks them and he pulls them out. So Jesus did the same thing. He's not coming to condemn the world. Now there is sin and it's a problem. So here's what we do with it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Pause. You believe in Jesus, your guilt is gone. That bad feeling that you have, that feeling of I am not enough. Jesus says, I am enough. You are right. You're not enough, but I am enough. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Now, but there's this statement, there's this contrast. Remember the ugly side of guilt, the ugly side of shame? It says this, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Now here's shame at its finest. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So we're sinners. We blow it. And God shows up and he shines the light and he says, come on out of hiding. Don't hide. Don't protect yourself. I know it looks really attractive. and I know you think it's going to make it better. And I know you think if you hide, I won't see it. And therefore I'll still love you. But here's the deal. I see it already and I still love you. But I need you to walk towards me. Don't hide. Please don't hide. Now, everyone who does evil hates light. We hate it. It's a true statement, isn't it? When you've done wrong, you don't want to run out and have your stuff exposed. How many of you say, boy, I blew it. I I can't. Well, shine a light on it. We don't like it. We want to hide. Ugly things grow in darkness. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. John 3, 17. Through 21. Now, here's the cool thing. This is going to give you a taste of next week. If we want to get rid of shame, we must allow God to see us. You have to. Shame derives its power from being unspeakable, from hiding, from keeping secrets. 
If I want to get rid of it, that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says godly sorrow leads to life. When I feel bad enough and I know that I've blown it, I've made a mistake, and I'm going to step out into the light. And I'm going to stand here before almighty creator God of the universe. And I'm going to stand here before my wife. And I'm going to stand here before my coworkers that I've hurt and I violated in this sin as well. And I'm going to stand here. I'm going to stand here now and I am going to be seen. And I'm going to say, forgive me. I've blown it. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to let the light shine in on me. But here's the deal. Why many of us do not do this is because we hate receiving help. I've grown up in Lancaster County, and I know this is a core truth that runs through this county. We will be quick and fast to help others. We'll give our shirt off our back to someone else. But boy, when we're down and we're out, seldom will we pick the phone up and say, hey, I'm really hurting. Could you stop over? Or hey, I really need help with this project. Could you come help me? We don't like that. Brene Brown, who writes on shame and studies on it, she's a professor at the University of Houston, written a number of books on shame. She's not a Christian to the best of my knowledge. But when she speaks, I feel like I'm reading the Bible. It's unbelievable. Here's one of her statements. This is from her book called Daring Greatly. It says, until we can receive with an open heart, we are never really giving with an open heart. When we attach judgment to receiving help, we knowingly or unknowingly attach judgment to giving help. And that's not the Christian message. The Christian message, the church of Jesus Christ is this. You are broken. You are a sinner. But God is for you. God loves you. Please don't run and hide. You cannot fix this on your own. You cannot fix it. Your religion will not clean you up. You need me. Please walk into the light. Please step out where the light can shine. Don't condemn yourself because you need help. Walk out and receive it. And Jesus says it this way, same statement. Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. Because now, here's why this is so powerful. Because now I'm not walking towards you with shame, looking for you to accept me. I'm walking towards you with nothing to prove because I'm already accepted by Jesus, period. And I'm going to open my hands up to you because I'm not looking for approval from you. I'm not looking for you to say, Adam, you're okay. You're acceptable. What I'm doing is I'm coming to you because I'm saying I'm offering you the same grace and mercy that I have received. And that's powerful. And that's life-changing. But many of us don't get there because we allow shame to root itself in deep in our heart. And we feel so unworthy. And we feel like I'm not enough. But Jesus' message is, you're right. You're not enough. But I am. Receive me, John chapter 3. So please don't protect. When you sense hanging in the balance, that approval and that acceptance and that, when you sense it hanging in the balance, step into the light and receive freely what Jesus has offered you and realize you have nothing to prove. I'm going to close in prayer here in just a minute. Here's the prayer that I want us to pray. The prayer of courage, I'll call it. I'm going to read it to you, then we're going to pray it. I'm going to ask you to just, again, quietly pray this. God, give me the courage to show up. Grant me the courage to allow myself to be seen. 
Give me the gutsy courage to feel the guilt, to know that I've done wrong. God, I receive Jesus if you're not a Christian or if you are a Christian. God, again, I know that Jesus cleanses me. And again, I seek your grace and mercy, knowing that I've done nothing to deserve it. Help me now live free and whole, giving away what I've received. Not looking for approval from those around me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, we are all sinners. We are all broken. Some of us have done wrong already today. Some of us are doing wrong right now in our hearts and our minds. Some of us will do wrong yet this afternoon and tomorrow. And God, as we do that, may we be people who are gutsy, who are courageous, who let the the pain of that separation with you hit us hard. But then may we be people that don't run and hide. May we be people who step towards you, knowing that you're for us. Knowing that you're offering cleansing and forgiveness and mercy. But God, we've got to walk towards you. We can't love the darkness and we can't run and hide. Because I just lead people in this prayer, God. Um, God, give us, give me the courage to show up. God, grant me the courage to allow myself to be seen. Help me not to run and hide, but allow the light to shine. God, give me the gutsy courage to feel that guilt. God, may we know that we violated a holy God. God, I received Jesus' cleansing, knowing I've done nothing to deserve it. And help me now live free and whole, giving away what I've received. And God, whatever we do, may we not run and hide. May we hear you walking in the cool of the garden, calling out to us, Adam, what have you done? Come on out and talk to me. God, may we hear you and respond well. May we not run with that worldly sorrow and shame that leads to death. May we embrace what we've done, come to you, deal with it, and move on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.